Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. So um, on our online church platform and YouTube, um, a few few folks I just want to say hi to. Uh, Larry's watching from Solon. Genevieve is in Twinsburg. Larry is in Solon. Um, and lots more out there. I know Kendra uh, wor- worships on our online platform. She's from Hiram. Um, so just want to say hi to all of you this morning. Um, I want to read a scripture from Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Messiah of God. He sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake will save it. What does it profit then if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? And then later on in Luke chapter 9, if my phone cooperates... My phone froze. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God.
All right, so good to be up with all of you online here in the house. Uh, if, you, if we haven't met, I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here, and uh, we're so excited to be together. I, I'm having an amazing day. Um, I'm excited because we've got people back in the building. Uh, the church never closed. The building has off and on, but it's good to see friends and friendly faces. It was good to be back in a parking lot this morning, uh, preaching in sub-zero temperatures or whatever it was. I was so excited that I forgot to put my gloves on. So when Dre said, lift your hands, I couldn't do it because I couldn't feel my hands, but they're back now, uh, so I'm feeling better, um, and it's, it's just an awesome thing, and I'm, and I'm so overwhelmed that nothing, not the pandemic, no devil in hell, could stop the witness of our church, and I believe Christ church throughout the world. Do you realize in 2020, we had more people worship here than in the history of our church? Can you believe that? Uh, even when we couldn't be in the building? I mean, almost two, almost three times. Um, and, and, you know, one, one of the greatest giving years, the second, I think, greatest giving year in the history of the church. It just was just a blessing to me that the church cannot be stopped. There's good news on the horizon. I keep hearing uh, some of our members, especially in the 65 and up, are receiving their vaccines, and, and we know hope is coming. You can come out with us if you want to here at 10 o'clock, pre-register. Once we max out on what we can do in a safe way, we'll go live at 1130 as well. You will come into that. You can come into our parking lot nine. We're taking our time. We're being smart. Uh, we're going to get there. Uh, but hey, Easter is coming, and I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating that. So we're in our, this today, well, actually Wednesday started what's called in the church life the season of Lent. It's a 40-day journey plus seven Sundays on our way to the good news of Easter once again. The early church knew we needed to kind of take our time. And so we are in a teaching series entitled A Renaissance of reconciliation, a renaissance of reconciliation. That comes out of the work of our Vision 2020 team. And so you're going to hear a little bit today. So if you're worshiping online and you're a member or friend or you've, you've just stumbled into us, um, the church has gone global, in case you don't know that. That's kind of global and local. And I didn't realize that until I shared a couple weeks ago that my father had passed. And some people online didn't know that. Some people here didn't know that. I started getting emails from around the country and even across the pond from people saying, we've never met you. We just want you to know we're praying for you. We've been worshiping with you for this year. It was just such a blessing to my heart. And, and as our vision team began to work, before the pandemic came, we had said that 2020 would be a year of vision, right? We would be looking ahead three, five, ten years out. We assembled 12 amazing people. Uh, my only requirement to be on the vision team was you had to be passionate about the mission of our church, and you had to be younger than me. Because if we're going to look ten years out, we're talking about I'm probably on my way out, and I want leaders that will be here to shepherd the mission. So out of that came this word we kept hearing over and over and over, reconciliation. And we decided that our 10-year mission is to trigger a renaissance of reconciliation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about our mission this week. Pastor Steve is going to talk about our vision next week in line with how Jesus was making his way to his mission, which was the cross. Now, all of us know on April 12th of 1912, you history uh, historians, that in spite of a lot of miscalculations and ignoring information, including that there were ice fields somewhere they normally weren't, the Titanic hit an iceberg, a ship that was called unsinkable, and sank, taking over 1,500 people with it. 
What you, some others didn't know is there was another nautical accident that happened just about a year and a half later. wasn't to anywhere the degree of the Titanic, but it was a significant loss, so much so that there was a congressional inquiry. It happened on a foggy night off the coast of Virginia when uh, the, the steamboat uh, Monroe was rammed in the side by uh, a merchant ship called the Nantucket. 41 sailors died. Congress called an inquiry to find out what happened. And the person that was charged was the captain of the Nantucket, a man named Osmond Berry, the one that had slammed into the Monroe. But in the course of the hearing, they discovered that the captain of the Monroe, a guy named Edward Johnson, he was navigating with what was called a steering compass. A steering compass was less accurate than the more common magnetic compass. A steering compass could be off by two degrees. And if not adjusted regularly, it could be off by as much as 20 degrees, which in the open seas is miles and miles and miles. So they determined that the, the culprit of this crash was not the, st- the, the boat that crashed into the other, but the one that was so far off course that it put itself in the way of the other. And here's what the New York Times wrote in 1912 about this. It said, later the two captains met, they clasped hands, they sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of disorientation in a compass that is miscalculated. One New York City theologian read that, and he wrote these words. We need to regularly calibrate our compass, tuning them to be directed to our creator, our magnetic north. And knowing the time had come for him to be lifted up, Jesus recalibrated his compass. He set it toward his magnetic north, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The moral of the story of the shipwreck of the Monroe and the Nantucket is the moral of the Christian life. There's a time to recalibrate your compass. And the journey of Lent was set aside for us to do just that, for individually, individually be recalculating and and looking at, am am I following the, the north? Am I in right alignment with God? Do you know the word righteousness? That's what it means. Everybody says righteousness means being holy, you know, um, doing all the right things. And it's really not what the word righteousness means. Now, that should come out of it. But literally in the Greek, the word righteousness means right alignment. I'm in right alignment. So Lent, journeying to Easter, gives us a time individually to look, recalibrate. Where am I at on my walk with Christ? But what we learned and why the vision team did their work, that we don't live out our faith simply individually. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, says the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. So we need to think individually and corporately. And so corporately, the vision team met for 10 months on average, six hours a month, listening right? Listening to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Where did that come from? It comes from Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus speaks a word to seven churches. Now, it wasn't just those seven churches, because we know there were way more churches. We know about that in the New Testament. You've heard me say seven is a word for completion, perfection. This was Jesus's perfect word to all churches. And to six of them, except one, one was doing it the right way, but six of them, what Jesus basically said, you've lost your direction, You've lost your vision. You've forgotten your mission. 
Your compass is out of whack. Now, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so, some of the things we learned about mission is this. That mission, first off, is your compass. It's your compass. Uh, Steve's going to talk about vision next week. But it's your compass, right? Jesus had a compass. What was his compass? It was the cross. That was his mission. He was supposed to go there. And mission defines the direction. Where was the direction? It was Jerusalem. Now, this is what Luke says in 951. Jesus is not going to get to Jerusalem until chapter 19, verse 29. But in the next 10 chapters, Luke is going to remind us again, 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 that Jesus knows his direction. He says these little, little things, if you catch them. Luke will say, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus went into Jericho and called a tax collector out of a tree and went to minister to him in his home. On the way to Jerusalem, 10 lepers came to be healed. Jesus healed them, but only one came back. In fact, at one point it says people came out from the city and said, Jesus, don't go in there. Herod wants to kill you. The the religious leaders don't like you. And Jesus said, I know, but today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way to Jerusalem. Your mission defines your direction. Your mission is something you should be able to state in one breath. So ours has been wide in the circle. My personal mission statement, I think we all should have those, is to connect people to a real God and a real world. And Jesus, if you read Mark chapter 1, Lamar Williamson, a New Testament scholar, said it as though he gave his mission while standing on one foot. I got bad ankles. I can't do that. Thanks to all those years of basketball. But Jesus said what? The time is at hand. The kingdom has come near. Repent. What does repent mean? Turn. Right? Calculate. Your compass. Time is at hand. The kingdom is to come near. Repent and believe the good news. So that's, that's how we live our mission. And our mission integrates our activity. So we've got to have this activity, whether individually, you know, we're parenting, we we're, 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 have our careers, we, we have our everyday lives, we have our recreation. But when you have your compass in the right direction, all of that activity, you appreciate it, it's wonderful, but it's kind of, it's in a direction. It has a purpose. It's, there's things you won't do. Because you're on your way to Jerusalem. So as we listened as a team in this, in this church, we know that our, our mission is to widen the circle, but we began to pray and listen. What does that mean? And so in one breath, the, 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 the vision team said, widen the circle means connecting diverse people who share a common brokenness with Jesus. So we all have a common brokenness. We're not the good people going out there to fix the world. We're broken people that have a great Savior that we want to go out and introduce people to and come and meet the man like the woman at the well said that changed my life. And on the way to that, your mission, you need to have uh, values. So we had core values uh, here in this church. In fact, our consultant said one of the strongest uh, missions and values he'd seen, but we allowed God to recalibrate. And so this is how the values that support our mission at Garfield Memorial Church, as safety, our church is a safe place where people can ask, seek, and knock. That comes from the Sermon on the Mount without fear of judgment. Our second one is, is still authenticity. Our church is absent of pretense where people can be their real selves before God and others. Diversity, our special thing that God has blessed us with in this community. Our church is a community that reflects our larger community and more importantly, the kingdom of God. The cross was Jesus' mission. The kingdom of God was his vision. 
transformation. Our church is a community where we expect to grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Our former uh, uh, um, core value for that one, for transformation, was growth. But we've, we've seen, what does it mean to grow? It means to be transformed. And then finally, forgiveness was our former, but what does forgiveness look like in the 21st century? It looks like reconciliation. Our church is a community that takes seriously Jesus' call to the ministry of reconciliation that only happens through justice, forgiveness, and ferocious love. We will not allow those bedrocks to be shaken. And so what is our strategy? You know, Jesus Jesus was very strategic, right? There were times where he was on his way to Jerusalem, but he made his way through Samaria to minister to one woman. He had her in mind. So what is our strategy? We, we listen and we learn that as people come in, and if you're with us online or you're, 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 some of you are here, and I'm not sure if I'm growing into transformation, we found this process that God gave us that we explore. We're, we do that together when we're in worship, many exploring online. If we're a youth and we explore in youth group or in kids club, or maybe there's people who explore and they come out to one of our bigger events like Night to Shine. It's a journey of exploration, right? How many of you have been intrigued by this satellite that took uh, how many years to get to, to get to Mars and we're getting all these pictures back and, and, I, and I think that's amazing I think it's more amazing to explore the God of the entire universe and, and that's what we're called to do and as we explore we connect we, we connect in groups we connect in service or whatever I mean pre-COVID and, and post-COVID I love our cafe out there that cafe we, we get our beverages what you don't know is that cafe team man just by serving they have connected so deeply they stay connected even with our even with cafe clothes some of them just connect in, in Zoom chats online they, before that they go to movies they do Bible studies together well, how do we connect Right? And when you do those two things, as we grow in God's word, that's when transformation happens, which leads us then finally to commitment. Let me, let me give the last of these. You can find these on our website. You have them here physically. But on our website, if you go in the little box that say vision, I'm dealing with our mission next week. Steve will deal with our strategy. But our measures then, I'm just going to rattle through these. How do we know we're living this out? Right? First, love. How am I loving my neighbor the way God loves them? Secondly, humility. How am I putting the needs of others above my own? Next is sharing. How am I sharing the good news of God's love for all people, not some people? And the way you do that is by connecting. Do I have meaningful connections with people who are not just like me? And that's how I live this out. And that's how Jesus lived out. So how do we get there? I'm going to talk to you real quick from this passage on a roadmap to discipleship. A roadmap to discipleship. See, chapter 9 in this story is a pivot point in Luke. The first eight chapters of Luke, just like the first eight chapters of Mark, are all about one thing. Who is Jesus? Like, who is this guy? Born in a major Grew up kind of in working class, poor. Dad's a carpenter in a low-rent town. And now he's out proclaiming that he is the the son of God and healing the sick, um, teaching hundreds of people. Who is this? I don't know who this guy is. And the first eight chapters is all about that. My favorite passage is when the disciples are out, you know, on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up and Jesus is asleep in the boat. You remember that story, some of you? If you don't look it up, it's good. And, and the disciples go crazy and they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care, we're going to die. 
And Jesus said, looks out the wind and the storm and the lightning. He says, peace, be still, and it's done. And he probably goes back to sleep. The Bible doesn't tell us. I assume that's what he did. Because his disciples start talking to each other, and they go, who is this dude? Like, even the wind and waves. Even creation listens to him? I like the old Cam King James. What manner of man is this? Is he an alien? I mean, what's up? And that's the question of today's chapters. But now in the ninth chapter, Jesus does with his followers what he does with you and me. And he says, okay, as you've been thinking about who I am, who do you? I don't care the crowds. I don't care the TV evangelists. I don't even care about your lead pastor you listen to or your teaching pastors. What about you? Who is he in your life? And Peter, speaking for all of them, man, he says, you are not one more teacher in the line of teachers or sages or prophets or great religious leaders. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one bringing the kingdom of God and all of its healing into the world. And at that moment, Jesus shifts from talking about who he is and says, follow me. And talks about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I'm going to say three things to you. I'm probably going to leave a little bit more time today, guys. But I'm going to say three things to you that it means. One, setting a new priority. Two, uh, finding a new identity. Three, loving out of a new love. I'm going to show you how those go forward and backwards. First, it's about setting a new priority. To keep our compass calibrated, we need to make sure we have the priority. And we see this at the end of the story. There's so many wonderful little pericopes in the story. But at the end, we have what some people call would-be followers of Jesus. I think that's pretty cheap, man. Because these guys had questions all of us would have. I think if anybody's being a little harsh, it's Jesus. You know, here comes a guy who says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, uh, nest, uh, uh, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? You want to be homeless? <laughs> And then he calls two other people, follow me. To one he says, follow me. He says, oh yes, Lord, I will. First, let me bury my father. Look, I just buried my father. So I'm right in the middle of this passage. It took on a new dimension to me. I'm like, yeah, Jesus, what's up with that? And he says what? Let the dead bury the dead, but you go proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Man, that seems pretty in your face, no? And then and, and the last guy, he says, follow me. He says, no, first let me go home and say goodbye to my family and friends. Jesus said, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back, which was dangerous in that day and age. It's like water in Texas right now. Your plow was your source of life. And if you hit a rock, it's broken. You probably don't have money to replace it. He said, nobody who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I get so mad at preachers when they preach on that saying, if you do this, you are not qualified to enter God's kingdom. Guess what? None of us are qualified to enter God's kingdom. It does not mean that. The word fit means useful. That's what it means in the Greek. If, you're, if you don't keep me first, Jesus says, you, God's healing f- power, you won't be useful to the kingdom. It won't flow through you. See, nothing that they ask to do is wrong. Bury your father. Say goodbye to your family. Have a house. Right? But what Jesus is saying is they all say, first this. Jesus said, no, it's got to be first me. And, what did you, and, and it, it's not like you're, you, know, you don't love your family and all these wonderful things. It's, it's a matter of priority. What's first? That's why the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. 
people again, this church make fun like, oh, you and Terry, you guys have been married 33 years, 31 years, and together 33, and you guys act like teenagers, and you got this perfect marriage. Yeah, we got a perfect marriage in front of y'all. Um, you know, we got our stuff too. But, but you know, we, they say that, what makes your marriage work? Because I, we don't compete for first place with one another. Jesus holds that honor. And we're content to be in second, and we just enjoy the heck out of it. Because you keep the kingdom first, and all these things will be added. And you know, Jesus says, you know, uh, when he says, let the dead bury the dead, I realized I had to dig into that since my father just died, and this guy wanted to bury his father. I realized he wasn't talking about physical death, right? Because physically dead people, unless we're in the walking tall, physically dead people can't dig graves, and buried dead people. So what's he talking about? He's talking about spiritual deadness. And he said, when I'm not first in your life, when other things creep in there as first, there's going to be some deadness that's going to enter into you spiritually. Okay, secondly, it's finding a new identity. What do I mean by that? Too many people look at discipleship, being a disciple, staying on track as uh, very, very mechanical. It's all about obedience. Do this and this and this and this and then God will love you. That's not the gospel. That's religion, and religion does some terrible things. That's why I say Christianity was not a religion. And, and it's so much obedience. Now, obedience will come, but what it is first is it's about reshaping who you are. And that's why I love this thing I, I wrote in my notes, that discipleship is not just bending your will to his will, but letting him melt your heart into a whole new shape. It's finding a new identity. And that's why Jesus says, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose their life? What, why does he do that? He's speaking to 21st century Americans. Because how do we find our identity? Through the world, through our stuff. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. So we define our identity by what we do, who we are. Why do you think when you meet somebody, and we can't help it, Americans, this is Western individualistic. You know, if you want to find yourself, you got to find your deepest desires and follow them. The only problem is your deepest desires change about every 10 years. So you remain confused, right? And so he's saying, if you try, what does it profit you to get your identity from the world and lose your life? Now, life wasn't bios, which is physical life. He used the word psyche, which is psychological life, your inner life. He said, what is your identity based on? He said, you need to base it on me. You know why? Because if you base it on anything in the world, you'll be unstable. Remember he said, don't store up your treasure on earth where moss can get, rust can hit it, thieves can take it. Why? Anything in the world, good things. You have the best parents in the world. Base your identity on them. Here's the fact, they're going to die. Is your career going to raise you when you die? I mean, the only stable identity we have, Jesus is the only one. That can, that can give us an identity forever. And he says, come to me, and I'll fulfill your life when you get me, and if you fail me, I'll forgive you. That's the identity, right? And how do we get there? How do we get there? It's called living out a new love. This is my favorite part of the story. Honestly, favorite part of this whole story is when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans reject him. Why? Because he's on his way to Jerusalem. You know, when you keep your focus and your mission and your attention on Christ, some people will reject you. And they will try to make you cooperate. But Jesus is on his way. He's not going to deter his mission. But the Samaritans reject him. And these disciples run out and go, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? 
Now there's a really negative part of that, and there's a, there's a part of it I totally understand. The negative part of that is there was probably some serious racism involved in this. When you say, okay, Chip, here you go, Mr. You know, Social Justice. No, it probably was. Why? Because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews because of their ethnic group. They, were, they had intermingled the bloodline with the Syrians. They had biracial children. They didn't like that. And so the Jews rejected them. Now you say, okay, they're ethnic enemies. Here's why I say racism was probably involved. Because up until this point for eight chapters, there have been a lot of people rejecting Jesus. There have been a lot of Jewish folk rejecting Jesus. But only when this group of people rejects Jesus, for the first time did the disciples say, Jewish men, you want us to call fire down on them? So that's a terrible part, and that's why Jesus rebukes them. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't rebuke the non-believers who reject him. He, he rebukes his disciples and says, oh, shut up. And, and, but here's the thing where I'm a little compassionate disciples. There was somebody who called fire down from heaven. You remember who that was? Elijah, thank you. I heard you online too. I don't know your name, but I heard you. Elijah, and Jesus has just come down from the mountain of transfiguration where he shined with the Shekinah glory of God and Elijah and Moses appeared and God said, this is the greater than Elijah and Moses. And so if, they, if he's greater than Elijah, why won't they do to his rejectors and enemies what Elijah did? Call down fire from heaven. Remember we did it twice. Once, Mount Carmel fighting the prophets of Baal. The second one is, man, it's a classic. I want him to turn into an action movie. I think it should have been Indiana Jones. It's in 2 Kings 1. Read it. Ahab, the terrible king, sends out a, an army of 50 people to go capture Elijah. They want to kill him. So he sends a commander and 50 troops. They go to the mountain where Elijah is, and a commander in his deep militaristic voice says, Man of God, come down. And Elijah said, If I am the man of God, fire will come down and consume you. And it does. So Ahab says, let me get another 50 people and go. You go out there and get them. So the next commander with 50, go to the mountain and said in a militaristic voice, Elijah, son of man, come down. He said, if I am a man of God, then the fire will come down and consume you. And it does. Now, Ahab sends another 50. You ever heard it? And Sandy is doing the same thing over and over. Um, He sends another. How would you like to be the commander of that army? Knowing what's happened to the last two. This guy must have been, his knees are shaking on the way there. Because when he gets to the mountain, he, gets, he doesn't stay on his horse. He doesn't speak in a big voice. He gets down on his knees. <laughs> he bows before me. He says, oh man of God, please come down. And Elijah is gracious with him. I got to thinking about that. The Samaritans didn't just reject him. The soldiers came for Jesus too. Remember? We'll hear about that as we go through Lent and Easter. In the Garden of Gethsemane. They came for him, and what did he do? He healed an ear of somebody who was cut in a skirmish. They said to him, the soldiers say, man of God, you know, to Elijah, man of God, come down, and fire came down. They said to Jesus, man of God, come down. He said, I see that one of you is hurt, and may I heal you. And later those same soldiers would drive nails in his hands and in his feet, And the crowd would mock him. Why don't you call fire down? Why don't you call angels down from heaven? And what did he do? He said, Father, forgive them. They just don't understand. This guy is the most un-Elijah of anybody in the Bible. (laughs) What's going on here? And you can find it later in Luke. Luke 12 says this. It says, Jesus said, I came to bring fire, always a sign of God's judgment, to the earth, And how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what stress I am under until it is completed. 
What's, what's going on here? He was already baptized, right? John the Baptist in the wilderness, in the Jordan. What's he talking about? Baptized with what? Fire. I have a baptism of fire. And that's why the fire didn't fall on the Samaritans. And that's why the fire didn't fall on the soldiers, because the fire fell on him. And only, let me, let me put this, this last slide up. Only until you are melted by the sight, the knowledge, the sense of Jesus taking the fire for you, you can't experience this transformation. You can't. And that's why this is going backwards. You love out of a new love, seeing the love that was given for us, which leads you to be melted to have a new identity, which leads you to set a new priority. That's what we need to be praying about this season. Now, there's a lot of things about discipleship I could say. Let me just rattle through them real quick because we've got four minutes here. Discipleship is not an option. Jesus said, if you be my followers, you will deny yourself, take up your cross. It's not an option. Some people say, well, there's kind of two forms of Christianity, lukewarm and decide not quite. No, if you're going to follow, it's a call to discipleship. The second thing is, to, but don't take that, to, you know, to wipe you out. Discipleship's a journey. Going to Jerusalem is a journey. You don't have to have it all figured out to be a disciple. You don't have to have it all together. I remember a man I, I, I brought it to Christ on a golf course who became my youth pastor, a man who was broken in my very first church in New York City. He was 50s, but he was great with kids. And his wife, his wife told me, don't golf with him because he doesn't like preachers. I love those kind. In fact, I was on the first hole and I was getting ready to hit my drive and he said to me, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And I stopped. I said, yeah, we could use one more. So why don't you come? I thought it was cute. Boy, you guys are a tough crowd. You can laugh through your mask. <laughs> but anyhow, he told me, I'll never forget when we started opening up and he said, you know, pastor, I, I, I like you seem authentic. When I get my life together, I'll come. I said, you'll never come. You got to come as you are in the journey. You got to come where you are. The only thing you have to do is take your fingers off your life. Quit claiming your right to self-determination and say, Lord, I let you sit on the throne of my life. The last one's really important. I'll take about three minutes, guys, here, and I'm done. This, the sign of your growing in your discipleship is gentleness. That's a good gift of the Spirit. And that's hard for, you know, street fighters from Youngstown to hear. I always thought, oh, that's weak. This is a, this is a major sign. If you want to know if you're growing as a disciple, you're getting gentler. You're getting kinder. You're getting more compassionate. You're being less judgmental. See, committed people, a lot of people say, well, discipleship is commitment. I need to be committed. Committed people stormed the Capitol on January 6th, okay? That's what commitment looks like. If you're committed, that I'm so committed. Politics, religion, they're some of the most dangerous people alive. You know why? Because they're extremely hard on themselves and they're, because they're never living up to it and they're even harder on others. But the glory of the gospel is the harder you are on yourself. Those questions, am I loving my neighbor as myself? Am I putting their needs before my own? Am I connecting with people other than myself? Because this is what Jesus calls on me, to love my enemies, turn the other cheek, you know, bless those who curse me. The harder you are with the gospel on yourself, the softer and gentler you are on others. And you don't want to call down on fire on anybody because the burning hair might be yours except for Pastor Scott, who doesn't have any. It's his, it's his birthday today. He's going to close us out. And because he doesn't have, I have more hair than him, you know I'm younger than he is. But you don't want to call fire down on anyone. I, I couldn't resist. 
we're, we're, we're authentic here. Did you hear me say that, Valcorvite? But it makes you gentler, friends. That's a sign you're growing, okay? Jesus says when his disciples say, do you want us to call fire down the Samaritans? He says, oh, shut up. My followers are not terrorists. They don't wish condemnation on anyone. They wish to build reconciliation. That's a sign you're not trying to save yourself through your commitment. That's a sign that you're not just religious, that you're getting kinder, that you're getting more gracious, because the closer you get to Jesus, hatred and bigotry and, and condemnation, it just seems to fade away. So follow him, friends. He will love you singularly like you're the only person on the planet and love you into a whole new identity, lead you into a whole new kingdom where you learn to love the way that he loves and be an agent of reconciliation. That's our word today. We hope you'll connect with us. Come, tune in next week.